I've got the privilege of introducing Karen um, to us today. Probably some of you know her way better than I do. I met her about 18 months ago and from the moment I met her, I felt connected to her. And I know that that's because we're both Christians. Uh, but more than that, uh, her gentle smile and her engaging conversation and just her kindness and her love for people is something that really struck me and something that I connected with. So thank you, Karen, and I'm sure we can all um, attest to that. We see that in her life. But mostly, uh, something that really inspires me is your faith in Jesus. And I think that you're one of the most bravest ladies I've met. Are uh, you married, Peter? And <laughs> maybe that's not the brave part. I'll let Karen speak to that. <laughs> that's right. Maybe Mrs. Millican Senior can speak to that. But um, who knows where Karen's come from? And please don't say America. Be more specific. Where, what state in America has she come from? Texas. Do you know that in Texas there are around 31 million people? That's massive, right? That's bigger than Australia, way bigger than Australia. It's the second largest state in America. What's its capital? Is it? No, it's not. Austin. Back to geography classes, lady. What about its flower? Does anyone know the flower? Rachel? Rachel Yolnick might know. No? The, the blue bonnet. Who quickly Googled that? <laughs> Did someone actually know that apart from Karen? Oh, she told it, right. Well, there's no prizes. This is just some... I love interesting, fun facts. What about the state sport? Does anyone have any idea what that might be? It's <laughs> close. Yeah, who said radio? Yeah, exactly. Sarah knows she loves all things cowboy. What was invented in Texas that you may have drunk? Anything that equals that tomorrow? Dr. Pepper was invented in Texas. Hmm. <laughs> There's lots of interesting facts about um, Texas, some things that people think about Texas that just simply aren't true, that there's only cowboys there, that all people from Texas listen to country music. And something I don't know about you, Karen, what's your favourite genre of music? Doesn't know, okay. She loves rap, okay. Well, all of a sudden we're disconnected. <laughs> You'll have to introduce me to it and I'll try and enjoy it. <laughs> the weirdest, this is the last one, the weirdest law in Texas is that you are not allowed to milk another person's cow. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. That's right, who'd want to? Now, some other things about Karen. Who knows what she did before she married Peter because she had a life prior to Peter. She... <laughs> Good one, Lauren. Yep, she was in the radio. Maybe. We'll find that out about her. She'll probably let us know in her talk. No? Who knows what she did before she married? She was a nurse and she went to a seminary. Who knows what seminary she went to? Dallas Theological Seminary. And there's something, when I was looking, I looked up Dallas Theological Seminary to find out more about it. Their motto is 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, teach truth, love well. Now, doesn't that sum up Karen and Peter? They both teach the truth and they love well. Now, I'm sure they learnt that prior to going to Dallas Theological Seminary, but I think it's been in, um, well and truly um, impregnated into them over the years. I also read that it's extremely difficult to get into Dallas. <laughs> so, well done, Karen. Um, now, we know she's married to our community group pastor, Peter. He has the privilege of being her husband. And we know that together they both enjoy their baby, Jack, who's about to turn one in one month. And we're all saying, where did that year go? It's because we're getting older. Okay. Who knows the food that Karen enjoys the most? Mexican, Tex-Mex, right? She loves Tex-Mex. Bring it on. Hot and spicy. Lately I've heard that Karen is getting into gardening. I don't know if you've turned another decade older, but <laughs> maybe not. She's enjoying gardening at the moment and Peter told me that her coriander is to die for. So <laughs> I'd say they're enjoying lots of dishes with coriander in it. That's so lovely. Um, yeah, anyway, Karen, we are so grateful for your willingness to share your teaching gift with us today. And I don't know about you, but I feel very, very privileged to have Karen open up the word with us today. So without any further ado, let's pray for her and our own hearts as we get ready to hear God's word. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for your gift of salvation Thank you that you sent Jesus to earth to redeem us, to buy us back, to get rid of our sin and to make us right with you. If that's all we had today, then we are supremely blessed. And we pray today that as Karen opens your word, that our hearts would be open to receive your message, to take a moment to be quiet we acknowledge all our lives are busy and messy and full, probably even overscheduled. We repent of those things and today we just want to sit and hear your word and be ministered to and to be blessed, to be encouraged and to go away changed from what we've heard today. So I pray now that your Holy Spirit would empower Karen, give her clarity, give her energy and give us listening ears and soft, teachable hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Man, I feel so known. Thank you. That was, that was quite the boost before getting on stage. So like she said, I'm Karen, wife to Pete, mom to Jack from Texas. See all these things you know about me? I love spending time with my family. I love reading a good fiction novel. I do love Mexican food more than anything else in the world, and we actually call it cilantro, not coriander. So if you ever hear me say that, that's what I'm talking about. Um, I actually hate sour foods, like the ones that make your jaw, like, clench. You know, yep, I hate those. I uh, hate being late. I hate being late anywhere for any reason. And more than anything, I hate failure. Hate it. Hate feeling weak. Hate feeling like I've missed the mark. Hate feeling like I've disappointed anybody in my life or disappointed God. In fact, I hate it so much that most of my life has been spent avoiding failure. Most of my life, I've spent only doing things I feel successful at. 
Does anybody else relate to that? Yeah? Great. Not just me. Um, one of the most obvious ways that I do this is through the avoidance of sports. <laughs> if it includes a ball, I am out. If you have to run, I won't. And this is not just me being stubborn. This is years, decades of clumsiness and a lack of hand-eye coordination that has led me to this place. And listen, I'm going to be vulnerable with you here today. And um, I'm going to trust you with some information. Please don't abuse it. Um, in high school, I took this so far that instead of enrolling in a sport or in PE in order to graduate, I enrolled in the marching band. Um, <laughs> The kicker to that is I didn't play an instrument. <laughs> oh, yeah, feels good. So while a silly example, example, failure has taken quite a toll on my life. You see, I put a lot of value into people's perception of me, even now. I want to look put together. I want to appear perfect. I want to appear smart. And, and it drives this desire in me to not fail. And when this perception is at risk... It manifests in anxiety and spiraling thoughts and ultimately a lack of trust in God. And so I tell you, about, tell you this about myself today because I, one, don't think I'm alone, but two, uh, the reality is that we actually can't avoid failure. So as much as we would like to, it's, it's inevitable in our lives. As much as we would like to, as Pastor Pete has been saying for the last month, pass the test, the reality is that sometimes we don't. We don't pass the test. And so what happens when we don't pass the test? You see, it's probably true that some of you in your chair there today are feeling like you're failing somewhere in your life, that you're missing the mark, that you're disappointing somebody. So maybe it's as an employee. You're drowning in your workload. You go every single day striving to impress your boss and your other colleagues only to end each day further behind than where you started. Maybe you're single, and your highest goal in life has been to get married, and you have tried, by golly, and for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened. It could be as a wife. You deeply desire to please your husband. You deeply desire to have a marriage at home like the one that you portray in public, but you barely talk, and when you do talk, you fight, and it just feels empty. Maybe you're retired, and in this season of life, it feels like you're failing because what was consumed with work and taking care of kids now feels like an empty home. Maybe it's your body image. When you look at yourself in the mirror, all you see is a little extra skin there, a little extra poundage here. Oh, sorry, kilos, not pounds. <laughs> uh, can't take the Texas out of the girl. Um, you restrict what you eat, you exercise excessively, and yet you still don't look the way that you want to. Maybe it's that somebody else's failure actually is making you feel like one. Their abuse their adultery, their failure makes you feel like one. Could be your depression, your stress, your lust, your sugar intake, the way that you prioritize your home over your family. Could be the way that you speak, your dating relationships. It could be anything. You see, for me in this season, I often feel like I'm failing as a mom to Jack. Jack is a terrible sleeper, which was a shock to the system. Um, and it has led to a year of short tempers, irritability, and frustration. Um, does anyone want to come live in my house and help me? <laughs> no offers? Okay. So when Jack doesn't sleep, I often find myself getting frustrated and often find myself getting angry. When I get angry, then I feel like I'm failing as a mom. It's exhausting. 
because I tell myself, oh, you're not perfect, which I should know is true, but it really bothers me that I'm not perfect and that I fail a lot more often than I would like to admit. And see, what actually happens is that that thought takes root, and then I tell myself, you're a bad mom, you shouldn't have any more kids, you can't handle life with just one. And it seems small, but this, this need for perfection, this idol of perfection in my life, it almost chokes me. And that lie fills me up inside. Y'all know what that feels like when the failure kind of fills you up inside? Yeah. So the question is, what do we do in these moments? What do we do when we're consumed with our own success or people's perceptions or our relationships or even our own shortcomings more than we are concerned with the Lord? What we're going to be talking about today is that more than success and more than striving, what we need to know is that our God is faithful. So I'll say it again. In our failure, what we need more than success and more than striving is to know that God is faithful, that though we fail, that his view of us does not change. And so what is God's faithfulness? What exactly am I talking about when I say that? So faithfulness is derived from the word faith, <laughs> obviously. It's an attribute of God. It denotes trust, reliability, stability, firmness. It means that God is true to his word and that he will keep his promises. In scripture, God's faithfulness is deeply connected to his promises, his covenantal promises with Abraham, Moses, and David. And God will do all that he says that he will. He does not fail. He will not leave us. He does not forget. He always acts out of love. And our God does not change. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that God is faithful. And so today, through our time in First and First Kings 18 and 19, we're going to be talking about God's faithfulness in our failure. So there's a lot of types of failure. In this story, we're going to be talking about two. So first, in chapter 18, we're going to watch Israel fail through idolatry. And then the second chapter, at 19, we're going to watch Elijah fail through fear and anxiety. So there's a lot of failure. Those are the two that we're going to focus on today. So God remains faithful to both of them. And normally, this is where I would say, let's jump in and force you to open your Bibles. But instead of starting in 1 Kings 18, I'm actually going to start today back in Genesis. You see, God's faithfulness can only be rightly understood when we have the right context. It can only be rightly understood when we have the right context. And so I want you to see God's faithfulness from Adam to Elijah. The other thing is that if you don't know this God that I'm talking about today, or if, this, if your view of God has been shaded because of suffering or hardship in your life, I want to introduce you to him, the real him. And so I'm going to take the next 10 minutes to tell you the story of God's faithfulness from Adam to Elijah. I don't want you to take notes, okay? Put your notepads down, put your phones down. I just want you to listen, okay? So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. By the breath of his mouth, he breathes into existence the light of the sun and the stars and the plants of the earth and the creatures of the land and the sky and the sea. In six days, God forms and fills all that we know and see. He created man and female, uh, male and female, Adam and Eve, in his image on the sixth day. He gives them free will, and he puts them in a garden called Eden. And God dwells among them, and all is right in the world. So, one day, everything changes. A serpent, who we know to be Satan, appears on the scene for the first time. 
And desiring for man to fall out of relationship with God, desiring for man to fail, Satan tempts the woman. He asks her, did God really say? And he instills doubt in her mind for the very first time. She listens, and in disobedience, she eats of the fruit of the tree. In this one moment, this one failing moment, sin and death enter the world, and it changes the course of humanity. So mankind has turned their face away from God, and now they're in need of rescue. Because of their rebellion, because of their failure, God should have killed them. But instead, because of his grace, he curses them. So God declared first that there would be a struggle between mankind and Satan, and second, that this struggle wouldn't last because one day the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head. So God is going to be faithful to this word. He's going to save mankind from their sin. It's just not going to happen in the way that they expect. So man is removed from Eden, and still God has given them this command to be fruitful and multiply, right? So as man increases, unfortunately, so does his sin. With each generation, rebellion, failure, wickedness, they all grow. Because of sin, God eventually floods the earth, choosing one man, Noah, to repopulate it. And after that, he eventually scatters mankind in location and language after the Tower of Babel. Yet, because of God's faithfulness, the seed of Eve is faithfully protected every step of the way. So, from this point forward in scripture, one by one, God is faithful to his promise to Adam. He calls a man named Abram. He says, go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abram listens. God promises him three things. He makes a covenant with him. He promises him one land, the seed, uh, or sorry, the land of Canaan, where um, it wouldn't be just his land, but for his descendants to live in. Second, seed, that from Abram, he would have a child, and not just one child, but as many as the stars in the sky. And three, blessing, that through Abram's family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So God then changes Abram's name name to Abraham, which means father of many, to show his faithfulness to this covenant. So after waiting 25 years, Abraham eventually has a child, Isaac, and he is the promised child of blessing. Twelve years later, God asks Abraham to do something we would never expect. He asks him to take his son, his only son, and to sacrifice him on top of Mount Moriah. Abraham, in faithfulness to his God, listens and follows through to the point of raising a knife to slaughter his own child. And God cries out, do not lay your hand on the boy. So while God does not ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, it points to a time where a son and only son is going to be sacrificed on this very mountain. So Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons, and we start to see the covenant of Abraham take shape. So fun fact, the name Israel means striven with God and men, which tells us exactly what their relationship with the Lord is going to be moving forward. So through the footsteps of Joseph, one of Jacob, now Israel's 12 sons, Israel finds themselves in Egypt. At the beginning, they had favor with the ruler Pharaoh there, but now 400 years have passed and a new Pharaoh is in charge. He fears the size and the power of the Israelites, which is evidence of the Abrahamic covenant right there. 
So he enslaves them and he instructs or he mandates that all of them must kill their newborn babies so that they would stop growing. One mother does not listen and she rescues her child and places him in a basket and sends him down a river. His name was, ah, good, you're still listening. (laughs) His name was Moses. As an adult, Moses murders an Egyptian, flees to the land of Midian. There he marries a woman named Zipporah and he lives the life of a shepherd. That is, until God calls him to be Israel's deliverer. So Moses encounters a burning bush in the wilderness, and out of the bush, God calls to him. He says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's reminding Moses of his faithfulness. God tells Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people, and he's sending Moses back to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. Moses asks him, who shall I say sent me? And God reveals his personal name for the first time. I am who I am. So Moses, though fearful, travels back to Egypt and tells Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. God sends 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt so they would know exactly who he was. In the last plague, God does something unexpected. He told Israel that he would faithfully save them, but they had a piece of the puzzle to do. They must slaughter an innocent animal, put its blood over the door of their home, and the angel of the Lord would pass over them, and they would be saved. God was faithful to his word. He saved his people. And here is where we see the necessity of shed blood for salvation. So God miraculously delivers the Israelites from the slavery of the Egyptians. He delivers them through the parted Red Sea. He sends down bread from heaven to sustain them in the wilderness. And then they come upon a mountain called Sinai. Here, God makes another covenant with his people. Here is where he gives them the law. So the law was never given for their salvation. That has never been true. It was always by faith that God would save them. The law was given for two reasons. First, to reveal God's character and his nature. And second, to regulate Israel's behavior so that they could be in a relationship with the holy God. So now... Israel has the law, and they're ready to go back home to the land of Canaan. Remember, that was promised to Abraham. As they reach the edge of the land, they enter into a new phase in their relationship with God. And we watch from Exodus moving forward that the entire Old Testament is about Israel falling in and out of favor with the Lord. So they come upon the edge of the promised land, and they look inside, and they get really, really scared. (laughs) They see some giants living within, people that we know to be the Canaanites, and they believe that the God who just rescued them from slavery in Egypt cannot handle these men. God is faithful, though. He's faithful to his covenant, and instead of wiping these people out, he decides that only a generation will be punished. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years while the Exodus generation dies out. So... They've gone, and under the leadership of Joshua, Israel experiences great success in their battles against the Canaanites. From the east to the west, they begin to conquer and settle in the land. Even so, God has given them one really, really important command, one that's going to come back to bite them here, um, and it is to totally destroy the Canaanites. Feels a little harsh, but his motive behind that was to protect the Israelites from their wicked ways, from their idol worship. However, we quickly realize that Israel is not willing to get rid of the Canaanites. And so generations pass and Israel's disobedience grows and they continue to ignore God. 
And during this time, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Foreign nations begin to rise up, and God, in response, raises up people called the judges to help deliver them. So we get to the end of Book of, of Judges, and there's a devastating civil war that has taken place. And Israel decides we're through with the judges, and they cry out to God for a king. God decides to give Israel over to their own desires, and Saul is made king. Saul, unfortunately, is a man of the people, but he is not a man of the Lord. And so God takes the kingdom from him, and he gives it to another. God chooses a shepherd boy, the smallest and the youngest of his brothers, a man named... Yeah, some of you are still listening. So he experiences great success. At the height of it, David decides that he wants to build God a house to dwell in. But God, he had other plans. He wanted to give David something much greater. So God promises David that one of his descendants would reign on an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom. There was coming a man or one who would save them and who would rule over them all. So David celebrates and he continues to try seeking after the Lord, uh, but he's still a man and so he fails. He commits adultery and murder and we watch that unravel his family. Yet God is faithful to his promises. So David fathers Solomon. Solomon fathers Rehoboam. Cute name. Rehoboam is a harsh leader. And under his oppression, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. So we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So the north has 19 kings, none of whom are righteous. The south has 20 kings, only eight of whom are righteous. And this is the part of the narrative that first and second kings covers. Does that make sense? Yeah? Great. One of you is listening. And so God has declared his covenant faithfulness repeatedly through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and yet Israel is still failing. They're still turning their face away from God. And this is where we enter the story. So now you're caught up, okay? So in this first teaching session today, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 18. Um, this is a very normal passage for a women's event, by the way. I'm sure all of you heard it the last time you went to a women's event. <laughs> And so we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 19 is going to be the drought, verses 20 through 40, the test, and 41 through 46, victory. Now, I did not put this text on the slides. I want all of you to look at me. I did not put the Bible verses on the slides, which means I'm trusting you to follow along with me, yeah? So get out your phones, get out your Bibles, and don't text other people or catch up on anything. I'm trusting y'all, okay? We are going to participate together in the study of God's word today. And we are going to see that despite Israel's failure of idolatry, that God continues to be faithful to his word and that he alone is the only way to life. So let's jump in. All right, open your Bibles, 18, verses 1. All right, the drought. Verse 1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So the first verse of our passage today introduces the key characters to our story. So first, the Lord. So the word of the Lord came. That's Yahweh. That's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's the God of Israel, the very one that we've just been talking about. Second, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So Elijah is actually introduced back a chapter before in chapter 17, verse 1. He's a prophet of God. 
He is known as the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Anyone want that title? (laughs) Um, He is actually from a town that scholars to this day cannot put on a map. He is a nobody from nowhere. That is exactly who he is. His name, however, is actually really important. It means Yahweh is my God. So keep it in mind as you keep listening. Last, Ahab. So the word of the Lord comes to Ahab in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab. So who is this guy? So Ahab is the king who rules in the northern kingdom. Do you remember me saying the kingdom split in two? There's 19 kings in the north, none of whom are righteous, none of whom seek after God. So he's one of those. He rules in Israel for 22 years. In verse, um, sorry, chapter 16, 30 says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So if we thought things were bad under Ahab, they're really, really bad, okay? So if you haven't heard of Ahab, maybe you've heard of his wife, Jezebel. It's not a name we see in circulation anymore. Why? Because she was a wicked woman, an idol-worshiping woman. And so together, this couple leads an already disobedient and rebellious Israel straight into idolatry. So let's take an aside for a minute. What is idolatry? So idolatry is a type of failure. Idolatry is choosing to worship or prioritize something other than God. It's seeking to find life or satisfaction or happiness or contentment or peace in anything other than God, anything else. John Piper uh, says an idol is anything in our lives that successfully competes with our love for God, that successfully competes with our love for God. So do you remember God's command to Israel to kill all of the Canaanites, right? It was to protect them from idolatry. And God doesn't want them to fall into idolatry. Why? Because idols are fake. They offer no real solutions. They don't give you life, success, hope. More than being absence of life, idols actually only lead to death. If you look for life in social media, comparison is going to destroy you. If you prioritize a full bank account, you'll find yourself exhausted, always trying to reach a target that's moving. Or in Israel's case, if you worship Baal and Asherah, who we'll come back to in a minute, it leads to unanswered prayers, years of drought, and an emptiness that cannot be satisfied. So, verse 1, and we know God, Elijah, and Ahab are at the center of our story today. So, let's unpack the rest. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So Israel's been experiencing a drought for the last three years. Elijah pronounced it to Ahab back in chapter 17. And I just want you to pause and think for a minute of this day and age with no rain for three years. Not a drop, not a morning mist, nothing. Literally nothing. So does anyone remember the floods in Toowoomba back in early 2022? I had just moved here and was like, what is with this place? Uh, but we had one weather event for a week, and I went to the grocery store, and that was what happened. Do y'all remember that? It totally destroyed the food supply chain, and all of a sudden, we like couldn't eat. I was like, where are all the vegetables? Apparently, they were gone. So this happened, one event, and we couldn't eat. Now imagine, three years of drought. You can't go to Kohl's, you can't go to Woolies. Your home garden is long dead. It means no food, no food for you, no food for your livestock, nothing. So the story continues. 
And after an interesting exchange with a man named Obadiah, who's one of Ahab's head of his household, um, Elijah finally makes it himself known to Elijah. Or, or, sorry, Elijah makes himself known to Ahab. So the last time Ahab saw Elijah, it was back in chapter 17 when he predicted the drought. So verse 10 says, There's no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. Meaning Ahab has searched high and low, hoping to kill Elijah, but had zero success for three years. So can you see the scene? It's almost like an old western, right? Ahab has wanted posters up all around town. He raises the reward money every single week, thinking someone has to know where this fool is. He checks out every hideout and dive and every off-the-map town looking for them and nothing. And Ahab is moseying down the downtown street that's all dusty, and who would show up but Elijah? (laughs) You know? Right? So this is the scene. Elijah comes on the scene. And so verses 17 through 19 say, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? So troubler means snake, viper. Ahab's feelings of Elijah are made very clear here. So is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. It's a good comeback, right? You and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So we're finally getting to the bottom of the problem. Famine or drought in the Old Testament often happens for a reason. In this case, it was Ahab's introduction of Baal worship into Israel. That's why there's a drought. If they knew their scripture, if the Israelites knew their Bible, which they didn't at this point in time, Israel should have seen this consequence coming. So Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 17, which I think I actually put on the slide, so I lied to you a little bit earlier. I'm sorry. (laughs) Take care, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish off quickly, off the good land the Lord has given you. So I want you to see this. By allowing the Israelites to experience the consequences of their sin, God was being faithful. Do you all hear me? By allowing the Israelites to experience the consequences of his sin, of their sin, he was being faithful. He was being true to his word. He was being reliable because this is exactly what he said would happen, and so it happened. God's faithfulness doesn't always feel good to us, right? So Elijah calls out Ahab for his introduction of Baal worship. And so who are Baal and Asherah? I have their picture here. One fine lady, I tell you. Baal was the god of the Canaanites. So this is the people who lived within the land uh, before Israel. Uh, They were the very ones that that they were supposed to kill so that they wouldn't worship foreign gods. So Baal was a fertility god. He's the one with the horns. Um, He was the fertility god of the sun and of the storms. He was thought to make the earth produce crops and to allow people to have children. Worship of him was really sensual. It involved ritual prostitution and the temples 
and it was a very manipulative system. If you pleased him, he might please you. So Asherah, one on the right, um, or that's my right. That's probably, yep, that's your right too. It's fine. I know my left's right. <laughs> so was the goddess of the sea and the moon, and her worship was actually explicitly forbidden and back in Deuteronomy, and Israel just doesn't care. So both of these gods, little, little G gods, are fake. They're idols. Their worship only leads to sin and death. And so let's recap the situation. Under the rule of Ahab, Israel has not only allowed idol worship into their society, but they are willingly participating in it. It's more than just a problem, right? It is Israel's failure to be faithful to God and his covenant. So because of this, they're experiencing God's curse, the drought, that is actually evidence that God is faithful to his word. So I want to pause here for just a second, and I want you to know something about Israel's idolatry. It didn't happen suddenly, right? It's the same way how you don't wake up one morning completely faithful to your husband and then go and commit adultery that afternoon. It's not how it works. It's a slow drift. There are small compromises every single step of the way. And you see, the same is true for us and our idolatry. Our idolatry tends to be a slow drift, one that if we're not careful will only lead to death. So that was the drought with Israel, and we're going to keep moving on to the test in verses 20 and 40. So y'all remember the showdown between Ahab and Elijah, yeah? Dusty downtown street. You'll never see it another way, I promise. So this section becomes less about Ahab and Elijah and becomes a showdown between God and Baal between God and Israel's idols. It's bigger, it's grander, and winner takes all. So verses 20 and 21 say, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. It's like when a toddler gets in trouble and they just stand there silently what's happening right Elijah calls them out he says pick choose one you can't serve both it's either God or it's Baal so we can sit here today and be like what is the matter with Israel these weirdos did you see those idols how could they didn't they know better but I want you to think when have you wavered when have you limped between two options when have you considered your way and God's way and been torn between the two You see, we do this all the time. We think idolatry is going to bring us life, satisfaction, happiness, joy. For example, we worship comfort, don't we? Is that just me? Our mentality is often, how do I make my life as easy as possible for myself? Right? We settle in. We avoid change. We don't take risk. We choose not to be vulnerable. We pad our bank accounts. We spend our time thinking about how do I get more me time because that is actually what's going to bring me rest and refreshment. Side note, I did this with America, and then I married a, move, or, or married a man who brought me here, so be really careful with this idol. <laughs> the Lord will take it away from you. <laughs> so verse 23 and following, to prove who the one true God is, Elijah, out of this suggests a test, a challenge, a contest. So both sides are going to get a bowl to give as a burnt offering, and each one is going to call upon their God. In verse 24, the God who answers by fire 
He is God. Okay? Bull of sacrifice, the God who answers by fire, he is God. So it's an interesting challenge, you see, because Baal, do you remember me saying that he was a storm God? So he only had to send one measly strike of lightning. That's all he had to do. It should have been an easy test for him. But what's also interesting is that Yahweh has a long history of fire too. He was a pillar of fire leading Israel through the desert. He appeared in the burning bush to Moses. He, this fire was no accidental choice by Elijah. And so Baal's prophets give it a go in verses 25 to 28. Says, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So they cry out his name for hours. And if you keep reading, they keep crying out, and they, can t- they start to cut themselves until blood gushes out of them, begging Baal to listen. Right? Remember, it was a system of manipulation. So they're doing everything they can to get this God to listen to them. And Elijah, he mocks them which I'm not saying it's a biblical case for mocking, but it is interesting. (laughs) He says, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. (laughs) Maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe your God's asleep. You just have to wait for him to wake up. And what's funny is that these mocks are actually really intentional because each thing that Elijah says about Baal was truly believed in their ancient mythology. They thought that these things about him were true. But what Elijah's doing is trying to prove to them, your God sounds very much like a man, right? So their prophets become way more frenzied in their asking. It ends in this chaotic and terribly depressing scene where verse 29 says, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. The prophets of Baal have utterly failed. Their idol worship only resulted in exhaustion and pain. So let's go back to that idol of comfort for a minute. Remember, we just talked about it. What's the end of that? If you worship comfort, what is the end of that? Your lack of risk-taking might mean that your relationships are becoming stagnant. You're actually losing friends instead of gaining them. Your avoidance of change has meant that you've missed out on opportunities for a new job, new relationships, a move to a new place, or the chance to go to school. Uh, You never jump into community because you don't want to be vulnerable, or you have jumped into community, but the second that somebody challenges you with some hard truth, you think, oh, I should quit, right? You have padded your own bank account, and so you don't actually get to experience the joy of what it is to give sacrificially. You prioritize me time higher than anybody else, which means that you don't get to know what it's like to serve in the midst of your weakness. You see, what you actually wanted, the very thing that you thought was going to give you life, only led to death. It only leads to death. God's looking out for us when he says, I don't want you to worship idols. And so we get to verse 30, and it's Elijah's turn. Prophets of Baal have gone. They were losers. Now we get to Elijah. So this is Elijah's moment. It's the one that he's been preparing for for years And he calls the Israelites to gather close. He rebuilds the altar that was there for Yahweh that apparently had been destroyed. And now is where it gets interesting. So not only does Elijah build an altar, but he digs this trench around it. Okay. Then he lays the bull on the altar. In verse 33, it says, fill four jars with water 
and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he asks the Israelites to do it three times, to fill four jars of water, pour it on the altar, and do it three times over. In the end, the water is dripping off of the wood, and the trench is filled. So, thanks to my lovely husband, I'm a big fan of the show Survivor. Anybody else? Oh, we have one, two, yes, holler, we should have a party. So, <laughs> I promise, it's a good show, just try it. So, we, it is always a guarantee that in every season, there is one torrential downpour. It's often in Fiji, so... There is always days of nonstop rain, which leaves the people, honestly, wrinkled beyond recognition. It's horrible. They are moody, they are angry, and the worst thing is that they're cold. Every single time, after these few days of rain, they try and start a fire, and guess what happens? Nothing. Why? Because wet wood never sparks. Wet wood never sparks. So what Elijah is doing is very, very intentional. He is not leaving any doubt in the Israelites' mind as to who is going to be God, right? If the fire not only starts, but if it consumes the altering, it could only be Yahweh. So in verse 36, Elijah prays. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, notice what he's doing. God, you're faithful. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know you. That they may know, O Lord, you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah doesn't even pray for fire. He doesn't beg. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't cut himself. He's not frenzied. He's calm. He doesn't ask repetitively, he asks once, and he asks for the conversion of his people. And what happens, verse 38 and 39, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So not only does the fire immediately come down and consume the burnt offering, but it licks up the entire altar and all of the water in the trench. If anybody had any doubts, God crushed them. If anybody was still considering worshiping Baal, God pushed that thought directly out of their mind. Idol worship, it is fruitless. Why? Because they're fake. You see what God is doing? Do you see who God really is, what he's trying to communicate to the Israelites? You see, God is powerful over all creation. He does not bow down to any other. He is fearless in the face of opposition. He is responsive to the prayers of his people, and he is so, so faithful in our failure. He did not have to show up in a miracle for Israel, but he chose to because he was pursuing them out of his love. This is God. This is your God. This is your God. So, now that we've looked at the drought and the test, let's quickly wrap up with God's victory. So, two things happen at the end of this story. So, first, Elisha and his servants seize the prophets of Baal, and he puts them all to death. Now, if this seems harsh, Deuteronomy 18.20 says, a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You see, these prophets, they were not innocent. 
they blatantly, openly, and often rejected God. For this, the punishment has and always will be death. And so for the sake of time, I cannot dig into this, but if this is concerning to you, come chat with me after. We'll chat. It'll be great. So Elijah seizes and kills the prophets of Baal too. God is faithful to his word, and verse 45 says, And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Not a drizzle, not a sprinkle. There was a heavy storm, one that soaked the parched land, one that gave the animals and the people a fresh, cold drink for the first time in years. You see, God saw his people be repentant. They said, he is Lord, and so he responds with rain. So what have we learned? Israel failed. They rejected God to worship Baal, falling into the deceptive lies that idols would give them life. And yet God faithfully allows them to experience the consequences of their actions and they demonstrated exactly who he was in their failure. He cared about them desperately. You see, he was there. He was waiting on their repentance the entire time. And as soon as they were ready... So was he. And yet, even after this, Israel continues to fall back into idolatry. Keeps getting worse year after year until eventually the nation is taken into captivity by Babylon hundreds of years later. They're eventually removed from the promised land because of their disobedience, because of their failure. But God, God in faithfulness continues to call Israel back to himself. You see, 1 Kings 18 wasn't the first showdown for God, and it certainly wasn't the last. Just like there was a moment in this story where God's power was on display for all people to see, he does it again just like this at Calvary. This time it wasn't just for Israel and their idols. It was for everybody and all of our sin, all of our failure. And instead of a drenched cow being consumed by fire, it is a man who is nailed to a cross. Jesus, the perfect son of God, came to earth. He lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserved. I want to say that again. He died the death that we deserved because of our sin, because of our shortcomings, because of our failure. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead in the biggest display of power in all history of mankind. And he did it out of love. And he didn't just love you enough to save you from eternity. He loves you so much that he's offering you life now. Abundant life now. All you have to do is believe. See, John 10.10 says, The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. The thief, our enemy, loves it when we worship idols. Oh, he loves it. He loves it when we are more concerned with our comfort, our beauty, our achievement, our body image, our relationship status, our perfection. He loves it when we are more concerned with those things than we are with God, right? Because it distracts us from what Jesus is actually offering. Abundant life, plentiful life, overflowing, peace-filled, drenched in hope, trust-ridden life. Does that mean that you won't have suffering? No. Does that mean that it'll be easy? No, it wasn't easy for Elijah to do any of those things. But he's offering life. And so what do we do with this? Why didn't God want Israel worshiping Baal? 
because they're a lie. Idols are a lie. They're fake. They're an illusion. God knew that they would lead to death. And so what I'm calling you, or what I think Jesus is calling us to, is to stop looking for life in the wrong places and instead to look to Jesus. I think it takes an honest assessment of yourself of where you might be looking for life other than Jesus. Stop looking for life in the wrong places and instead look to Jesus. What that means is that we stop looking for life in food because it's fleeting and Jesus is the only one who can offer us the bread of life. We stop looking for life in our achievement because even when we reach the top, it feels like empty And Jesus achieved more than we ever could at Calvary. It means that we stop looking for life in men because they're idiots. (laughs) We stop looking for life in men because they're only going to fail us. And Jesus was the only, is the only perfect man. It means that we stop looking for life in our children because what happens is that our children grow up and they leave us. And Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We have to stop looking for life in the wrong places, and instead we have to look to Christ. He is the only true source of life. And so in the moments where you're tempted by these idols, I want you to remember they only lead to death, and instead set your eyes on Christ. He's faithful. So I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that even when we're not, that you are still faithful to us, that we can't leave your presence because you've promised to be with us always that you pursue us in the midst of our idolatry because you love us so desperately god i thank you i pray that you would help us see where we are seeking life outside of you and that you would help redirect our eyes to jesus he is the only true path to life it's in his name i pray amen um Who else has felt the fog of anxiety? That gut-wrenching feeling you get when you're fearful and you're lacking a trust in God. The spiraling thoughts, the disorientation, the breaking. So much of what Samara said was really relatable. And, oh goodness, I have felt that. If you know me at all, you know that fear and anxiety are right up there with my top qualities. (laughs) Um... And so Peter and I moved back here, or back here to Australia in November of uh, 2021. While I would love to say that I trusted God fully through that season, and it was just beautiful, I struggled. Oh, goodness, I struggled. So we met in Dallas and started dating back in August of 2019. By the end of the year, we knew things were getting serious, and so we booked a trip to come here so that I could see the country, I could meet his family, And we could decide, are we doing this international marriage thing? Well, little uh, did we know, our trip was for June of 2020, which meant a pandemic hit. And I didn't get to come. And so he came here and saw his family and came back home. And we ended up still getting engaged. So when we got engaged, I had neither seen Australia nor met his family, which is risky, y'all. My mother-in-law is here, and she is beautiful. But wow, that could have gone a different way, okay? So... After getting married in October of 2020, we decided that God was moving us here. And it was really, really difficult for me. I've lived in Dallas my entire life. And there were no, like, flashing signs or blinking lights that, like, pointed an arrow of, like, you were supposed to go to Australia. It was just, like, 
Lord, if you're going to open up doors, I guess we'll keep walking through them. And it was little baby things at a time. And so by November of 2021, we had sold almost everything we had, packed precious things into storage. I had quit my job. We had said goodbye to all of our friends in Dallas, and we moved a couple hours away um, in with my parents uh, as we waited for our flights, which had at this point been canceled multiple times as we were just trying to get here. And right before, um, like the week before we were supposed to leave, the Delta variant of COVID hit. Do you all remember that? Um, And so we decided to cut the goodbyes with my family short and move up our flights. 24 hours after we figured out this variant was coming, we were standing at the airport. And we just didn't want Australia to close their borders again. And so um, saying goodbye to my parents, uh, to the rest of my family, was easily the most traumatic moment of my life. Um, Getting on a plane to fly internationally in the middle of a pandemic, it, it was risky. We didn't know when we would get back. And so um, we were just a couple hours away from boarding our flight to Sydney uh, in L.A. We were just a couple hours away from leaving America for the foreseeable future. We were just a couple hours away from starting a life in a new country with a new family. And my anxiety that had always been controlled became out of control. I think the trauma of the day just, just broke me. Um, And so a tingling sensation came over my body. Uh, My thoughts were scattered. I was shaking, and I couldn't stop. And the pervading thought, really the pervading lie in my, my mind, was if I get on this plane, I'll never see my family again. If I get on this plane, I'm never going to see my family again. Uh, (laughs) Right before boarding a really, really long flight, I was having my first panic attack. It was, a, it was horrible, honestly. And I actually don't think I would have gotten on the plane if it weren't for my husband. He sat by me in it and just told me the next thing to do. It's like, okay, now you're going to go change your clothes. Okay, now we're going to eat dinner. Okay, now we're going to sit at this table and we're going to do this. Okay, now you're going to go brush your teeth. Okay, now we're going to walk to the gate. He literally had to give me like step by step because I was spiraling. I can't believe I got on the plane. I got on the plane, and this sweet man had um, a stack of letters from my family, notes of encouragement for me to read, that sitting there was actually the right thing to do. Um, He's a good one, that guy. And so it was really scary. It was really disorienting. And I really questioned God in those moments. It's like, if I believe, why isn't God giving me peace? If I believe, why am I still struggling with anxiety? If my faith is real, why do I feel like this? Has anyone else been there? (laughs) If this example isn't close enough to home on Thursday, my son had an allergic reaction to peanuts. And uh, he's totally fine, just really bad hives, but the panic kind of sprung up again. And so if there was any inkling in me that thought I'm a teacher on this subject instead of a student, that got whipped right out of me on Thursday. So... (laughs) Listen, I am with you in your anxiety. And so the word anxiety actually has a lot of baggage with it, I would say, but it's simply a feeling of worry or unease about something with an uncertain outcome, right? Often, and notice how I say often, uh, anxiety comes back to a lack of trust in God. That is not always the case. Anxiety can absolutely have a hormonal or chemical imbalance that causes it. 
I want you to know I know that. Right after I had Jack, I had postpartum depression and anxiety, and I needed medication to rebalance in order to heal. So that is a real thing, and I know that. That's not the kind of anxiety we're talking about today. I'm going to be talking about a lack of trust in God, okay? I want everyone to nod their heads and be like, yeah, she gets it. Okay, cool. Um, and so anxiety, a feeling of worry or unease about so- something with uncertain outcomes. And so I want you to push yourself to be vulnerable here. Samara went first, which is the hardest place to be. I went second, and I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable. So we're all friends now. We all just had an amazing lunch, which was like the most Aussie lunch at a women's event I've ever had. Lamb curry, that's hilarious. <laughs> For the record. It was delicious, by the way. We just wouldn't serve it in America, which is funny. But we're all friends now. We can be real with each other. So how many of you have been anxious in the last six months? And maybe not panic attack level, but that feeling of unease or worry about something. I want you to physically raise your hand if you have been anxious in the last six months. Okay, great. What about the last month? The last week? The last 24 hours? Can you all look around the room? Just great. Okay, so it could be worry about your teenage daughter who's going her own way despite being raised right. She disobeys, she challenges, she presses every single button that you have, and you cannot help but wonder, what is going to happen to her? (laughs) No, what's going to happen to our relationship? Maybe it's your marriage. You've been married for years, but you don't really know each other anymore. You don't talk about hard things, and you just wonder, what's our future? Maybe you're concerned about caring for your aging parents as you yourself are getting older. It's it's a done out of love, but it can be a burden that you shoulder alone. It feels like anyway. Maybe you're like me and you have social anxiety, which if you didn't know that, holla. (laughs) Uh, Group gatherings can feel really taxing, and even coming here today felt like a massive step. And if that's you, I want to say I'm really glad that you came. Uh, Maybe it's that you're fearful of so many things that it's hard to actually pin down just one. (laughs) Your job is difficult, your family relationships are strained, your car's on the fritz, your bank account looks empty, your future's unclear. Could be anything, right? Where is God? Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't struggle with fear and anxiety, and I should just get out and leave. What about disappointment in God's plan? Or a struggle with control? Or following through with God's commands even when they're hard? And shoot, if nothing else, you are now sitting in a room full of very anxious women, and you can help a sister out. So I am confident that everyone will be able to apply First Kings 19 today. So in our last session, we talked about Israel's failure of idolatry. And today, through Elijah's story, we're going to be talking about personal failure. We're going to be talking about his fear and anxiety. So we're going to see that in our fear and anxiety, in our failure, we need God's faithfulness to know that he's with us, that he won't leave us, that he'll help us in our weakness, that he'll be kind to us in our hardest moments. In our failure, we need God's faithfulness. And so we just finished 1 Kings 18. Elijah has experienced great success. He was obedient, and God responded by miraculously bringing fire down from heaven. He dismantled this illusion of idols in front of all of Israel, and he ended by bringing this massive heavy storm. It was a mountaintop moment. If anything, Elijah should not be struggling, and we're going to watch him run straight from the top of the mountain directly into a valley. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 19. So verses 1 through 3, his fear, 4 through 8, God's sustenance, and 9 through 18, his response. 
Elijah's fear, God's sustenance, his response. So same deal. I don't have any of these verses on the slide, so I'm trusting y'all to read your Bibles. We can do it together. So today we're going to see how God is abundantly, abundantly faithful to his prophet Elijah, even when he failed. We're going to watch God care for him in the midst of his fear and anxiety. So let's jump in. So verses 1 through 3, Elijah's fear. Um, As I read this, I just want to remind you, Jezebel is King Ahab's wife. Okay, remember that. So verses 1 through 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So first things first, I want you to notice how Jezebel is the one to threaten Elijah. It's not King Ahab. So in the last chapter, Elijah willingly went to meet King King Ahab without any fear that we're told of, right? He encounters him face to face. It was that showdown, you remember? And so he shows up loud and proud, no issues. But as soon as Jezebel, Ahab's wife, threatens him through a messenger, nonetheless, he didn't even see her. He did through somebody else. He runs scared. So why? Jezebel... Her name actually means, where is the Baal? So do you remember Elijah's name? Yahweh is my God. So where is the Baal? Ultimately, she is the one who brings idol worship into Israel, not her husband. It's through their marriage that it's introduced. So she's actually the one who killed all the Lord's prophets. She is a wicked, wicked woman. And so outside of those two things, the fact that Elijah runs from her threat tells us that she's not only wearing the pants in that marriage, but she's the one wearing the pants in the kingdom right? Elijah doesn't seem to be in control of what's going on. Jezebel is. So Elijah thinks her threats are credible. He fears for his life. He thinks she is going to kill me and he runs. So look again at verse three. Then he was afraid. Every time I read that, then he was afraid. I was petrified. Like I can't. I'm sorry. Okay. Verse three. Then he was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah was fearful, and not just fearful, but scared that Jezebel's going to kill him, and he runs. Fear grips him, and he runs. That's always how fear works, right? Fight or flight. (laughs) Medically speaking, when there's some kind of threat, the sympathetic nervous system kicks on. Sorry, I'm a nurse, so you're going to get a little background here. It kicks on. It was designed by God to help us react to life-threatening situations. It's literally its purpose. So your body begins to prioritize saving its own life. It kicks your system into high gear and gives you a boost of energy so that you can do whatever you need to with what's in front of you. So adrenaline pumps into your bloodstream. Your heart rate increases. Your blood pressure spikes. Your breathing becomes rapid. Your senses sharpen. It's actually pretty incredible. Um, But... It's also a problem, right? The desire to run becomes overwhelming. Your body was designed for this. But the issue is that our sympathetic nervous systems tend to be a bit overreactive, right? So instead of just fleeing from, like, somebody with a gun, we flee from, like, women's events because we're scared of small talk, (laughs) right? It's like the same system that gives you fear in that moment gives you fear in this one. It kicks on, and you are, like, ready to run. And so... 
even if medically speaking we didn't have evidence that your body was designed to run from fear or with fear, biblically speaking, it's everywhere. So Adam and Eve run from God when they sin. Jacob runs from his brother Esau. I don't know if you remember that story when he begins to seek him. Moses runs when he kills the Egyptian. I told you about that one already. Israel runs from their enemies, the Canaanites, when they fear their size. David runs from Saul when Saul seeks after him. Fear makes you run. Fear always makes you run. So when has your fear made you run? When have you wanted to escape or avoid or get out? Elijah gets it. He ran, and not because God told him to, but because his fear drove him to. So rather than remembering his theology, Elijah reacted to his circumstances. I'm going to say it again. He knew who God was. God just brought down fire from heaven. But rather than remembering his theology, Elijah reacts to his circumstances. Okay? He ran as if his life depended on it. And he goes far, y'all. He goes really far. He runs to the furthest end of Judah. I think I have a picture. So that's a bad color scheme. It's beautiful with this stage. But um, the arrow at the top is Mount Carmel, that little jut out of Israel. And then the arrow at the bottom is where he runs to. It's 180 Ks away. So it, this is like um, you get in a fight with your husband, and instead of taking a walk around the neighborhood, you walk to Byron Bay. Like, oh, that was a little bit of overkill, <laughs> like, right? And so he goes far. It's a bit excessive. And what's crazy is that in a little bit, it says that he goes even further. And so what's happening here is that Elijah is probably physically and emotionally exhausted after this encounter with the prophets of Baal, even though he succeeded because God responded with rain and fire, um, but he's struggling, and like I said earlier, if there was ever a time for him not to struggle, it would be this mountaintop moment. But Baal worship has not been eradicated in Israel, probably like he thought it would. Jezebel herself is evidence to this fact. The fact that she is seeking after his life tells us that she is still worshiping Baal. So even though God displayed this mighty miracle, people were still bowing down to idols. And I'm guessing, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing that failure, that Failure for Elijah, what felt like failure, was probably eating him up inside. Probably wasn't even thinking clearly. What he thought God was going to do, God didn't do, and it really messed with his head. And so let's go on to the next section, God's sustenance. That was um, Elijah's fear, now God's sustenance. So verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so that's beyond Beersheba, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So Elijah continues on past Beersheba and finds himself under a broom tree, which is like this cutie right there. Um, it's not even a lot of shade. It's like a really crummy tree to sit under in the middle of the desert. And so he sits here and he finds himself struggling with depressive thoughts self-pity, and in this moment, he really has an inability to cope with what's in front of him. Y'all, this is God's prophet. I'm sure everybody here had already heard of Elijah. Like, one of the mightiest men of Scripture, one of the well most looked-upon men of Scripture, and this is where he is, sitting under a tree in a sink of depression and anxiety. The Bible doesn't leave out hard things because it knows that we struggle too, right? 
And so look at the scene and take just a second to think about where he is, to walk in his shoes, to feel his emotions. He's isolated in the desert, anxious to the point of despair, sitting in the depth of his depression, questioning his future, thinking, I'm finished. NIV translates verse 4 to, I have had enough, take my life. Have you ever felt that way? I have had enough. My husband has been ill for years, and there is no end in sight. God, I have had enough. I thought I was going to marry that guy, and now what? God, I have had enough. This diagnosis has changed my ways, or changed my life in ways I never imagined possible. God, I've had enough. I thought my baby was going to sleep through the night six months ago, and I'm too exhausted to take care of him anymore. God, I have had enough. Work is so draining. I am running on empty. I don't even know how to show up tomorrow. God, I have had enough. I can't juggle my husband and my kids in our household any longer. It is too much for one person. God, I have had enough. So where are you feeling like you've had enough right now? Elijah had had enough being God's man. He was done. He was tired. And he goes on to say, I am no better than my father's. So earlier we talked about the fact that fear makes us run. The other thing that fear makes us do is it makes us really susceptible to the lies of the enemy. When you go back into Elijah's story, there's nothing about needing to be better than his fathers. So when he says fathers here, he's likely talking about any of the men of God who came before him to purge Israel of the idols. God never asked him to be better than his fathers. And so this was an expectation he had placed on his own shoulders and decided that he didn't live up to. Fear makes us susceptible to the lies of the enemy. So before moving on, I don't want to miss the fact that Elijah asks God to take his life. It's really significant because it tells us that this prophet was really at the end of himself. He was at his end. He had nothing left to give. If you've ever reached that point yourself, or if you're there today, I want you to, I just really want you to see what God does in the rest of the story. God sees him, God hears him, and God really, really intentionally cares for him. So again, God sees him, God hears him, and God really intentionally cares for him. So if you're there, God sees you, God hears you, and God will care for you. And if you don't believe that for yourself, I'll believe it for you. So go on to verses 5 through 8. It says, And he lay down, so Elijah lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and went in that strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So an angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. He's a messenger of God, ready to care for this weary prophet. God has heard Elijah's cry, and he is responding to it. And instead of giving Elijah what he wants, did you hear that? He doesn't give Elijah what he wants, which is to end his life. Instead, he gives him what he needs. And so... Elijah has run in fear to the opposite side of the country, and just when he's ready to give up, I want you to hear this, God has him eat a meal and take a nap. 
okay? <laughs> like, I'm not saying that this text is prescriptive, <laughs> but I think it's significant that in the depth of Elijah's pain, God provided a time of rest and refreshment. That's who our God is, right? That in the depth of Elijah's pain, in the depth of his despair, in the depth of his anxiety, God provided a time of rest and refreshment. And listen, when we get run down, I think, especially those of us who grew up in the church, we have this mentality that God is going to be disappointed in us if we slow down. That God is going to be disappointed in us if we take a second to rest. We think, ah, oh, he, certainly he wouldn't want that for me. But in this case, he instigates it. He instigates it for Elijah. Don't miss that. Have a snack. Take a nap. So look again at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for you. We could just pass right over that, but it's a really powerful statement. God was caring for Elijah in the midst of the desert, giving him protection and his provision. Why? Because he couldn't do the journey ahead alone. And isn't that just the Christian life? We were never meant to do the journey alone. We oh, were always meant to do it with God instead of for God or with God instead of alongside of him. It's, this burden is not ours to carry alone. Jesus carries us in it, right? We don't have to figure out our own sanctification. We don't have to perfectly love people. We don't have to never fail. That's not our job. <laughs> the journey is too great for you. God knows that. And so, friends, I know you. You are my friends. We hang out. Our kids play together. I sit next to you in community group. I sit next to you at church. If your stress, if your fear, if your anxiety have become too much for you, I wonder if it's because you're trying to do it alone. The journey is too much for you. Dallas Willard, a famous Christian theologian, once said, the Christian life is what you do when you finally realize you can do nothing. He's, he's a very smart man. <laughs> so, back to the text. So, where is Elijah headed? That's really significant. So, it says um, that he is headed to Mount Horeb. Weird place, but it's another name for Mount Sinai. Y'all remember Mount Sinai from the story? It's this moment is a clue for the original audience. It should be a red flag of sorts of like, oh, something's happening, something's coming, that place is a big deal. Why? Because of Moses. So this is the location of the Mosaic Covenant. It's where God gave Israel the law. Um, in Exodus 33, I don't know if y'all remember this story, it's where Moses hides in the cleft of a rock and the presence of God passes by him. And what's also interesting and worth saying is that it should have only taken Elijah about 14 days by foot to get only. <laughs> that's quite a journey. 14 days on foot to get to Mount Sinai. And instead it says he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. It's alluding to when Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their sin. They had something to learn there. God needed to do some work on them. And so Elijah does the same thing. He wanders for 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes upon Mount Sinai. This was an indicator that God was going to speak to Elijah in a powerful way. And so let's see what he has to say. So verses 9 through 18, God's response. So we've looked at Elijah's fear. We've looked at how God sustained him. And now we're going to look at how God responds to him. So verses 9 and 10. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. So God calls him to this mountain so that he can experience his presence. And what does Elijah do? He runs into a cave. The text doesn't say, but I'm pretty sure Elijah's not supposed to be there, right? But God, but God keeps pursuing him in the midst of his fear and anxiety. God speaks to him. He's not deterred by the fact that after God has miraculously provided fire from heaven, that Elijah's still scared. He's not deterred by the fact that after God has miraculously provided through an angel in the desert, that Elijah's still scared. What does God do? He keeps pursuing him. And he asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He calls him by name. And isn't that just our God? I mean, think back to Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin. God chooses to walk among them and ask them, where are you? He's pursuing them. He's pursuing Elijah. But consider Elijah's answer. He says, I've served the Lord faithfully. They haven't, and yet somehow I'm the one who's hurting. I'm the one who's left running for his life. I'm the only one left. We can relate to his attitude, right? When we kind of spiral and um, we become soaked in doubt and despair, here Elijah doesn't leave any room for God to use his pain, right? No room. And this is what fear does. It makes us spiral and we can't even see what God might do with it. He's isolated. He's believing lies. We've all been there. And so God responds. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. The sound of a low whisper. That's where God's presence was. So yet again, God keeps pursuing Elijah and his fear and anxiety because at the beginning of this section, he tells Elijah, go stand on the mountain. Elijah stays in the cave. <laughs> eh, pesky little fellow. He stays in the cave. And God's presence comes by, but it tells us it's not in the wind, it's not in an earthquake, and it's not in fire. You see, we've seen these massive powers of display already. We've seen wind, we've seen earthquake, we've seen fire. God has brought down a massive flood and wiped out humanity. God has split the Red Sea and allowed Israel to walk through. God has brought down the walls at Jericho when they just were walking around them. And as we just saw, God brought down fire from heaven. God can work in big and mighty and miraculous ways. But here, he speaks to him in a whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why? I think a couple reasons. First, to show Elijah that God doesn't always work in these big, mighty, miraculous, instant kind of ways. Sometimes his works are big and shocking, and other times his works are quieter. They're smaller. They're more gentle. They're no less powerful, but they are different than what we might want in that moment. Sometimes we're like, 
bring down the fire from heaven. Come on. And he speaks to us in quiet. Right? He could have sent a king on a white horse to save the world. And he sends a baby. Sometimes his works are more gentle. So that was first. Second, Elijah is exhausted. He's drained. He's empty. He has nothing left to give. He's scared. He's anxious. What he needs from God is not a mighty display of power. It is a gentle and tender moment with a God who loves him. And God meets him exactly where he's at. That is the faithfulness of our God, that he knows your heart and he meets you exactly where you're at. So the very God who can bring down fire from heaven is the one who might want to speak to you in a low and gentle whisper. So Elijah goes out to stand at the entrance to the cave after all of these mighty displays of God have happened and God has whispered to him. Verse 13 says, And behold, there came a voice to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God asks him one more time the same question. It's like, <laughs> like when you do this with your child, right? You repeat the same question, and you're like, I'm hoping for a different answer this time. <laughs> so God gives him one more chance. Elijah, however, gives the same response. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's so tangled in his own thoughts, so wrapped in his own anxiety, that even the wind and the earthquake and the fire did nothing to rattle him out of it. Even the gentle whisper didn't shake him. But God still pursues him. Verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And Elijah, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. God wasn't finished with him, which is actually pretty incredible given what's happened. You see... Elijah's fear and anxiety didn't disqualify him from a close and personal relationship with God, and they also didn't disqualify him from ministry. God wasn't finished with him. God wasn't mad at him. Furthermore, God listens to his plea that he wants to be done, and he responds. See, he doesn't end Elijah's life. He doesn't give Elijah what he thinks that he wants, but he wraps up Elijah's ministry with integrity and care. That is a faithful God. That is a really faithful God. And so before this happens, God instructs Elijah to return to Damascus and do three things. And we could just like blow through this and move on. But these people, these things are actually really significant. And so he tells him, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elijah to be prophet in your place. Why, who are these guys? Why do we care? It's such a weird command after the depth of this story. Well, Hazael was a wicked leader that God was going to use to discipline Israel for her sin. Jehu was a ruler who was going to destroy the dynasty of Ahab. So he was going to wipe out Ahab's family because of the idol worship that he's brought into Israel. And it was ultimately under Jehu's reign that Baal worship is eradicated. And lastly, Elijah's ministry is going to carry on from Elijah's ministry. God had a plan. God had a plan the whole time 
that did not depend fully on Elijah. God had a plan. And so God wraps this section in verse 18, and it says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now remember, we talked about fear and anxiety making us susceptible to lies. Elijah has said three times in the last two chapters that he alone is left. I'm the only one. God, I am the only one who's, gosh, I'm the only one. What are you doing? And we get here, and it tells us he has 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal. 7,000, not one, not two, not like three friends Elijah can hang out with. He has thousands of people in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal. You see, we have no idea what God is doing. We never know the biggest picture. We only see our slice of it, and often our anxiety goes, right? Gives us tunnel vision, and we can't see everything else that the Lord is doing. You see, Elijah was just one piece of God's puzzle, one piece. And God faithfully was leaving a remnant. The seed of Eve that we talked about in the last lesson, he was being protected. God was being faithful to his word. God knew what he was doing. In his fear and anxiety, God was faithful to Elijah. He was understanding when he chose to run. He cared for him in the desert by providing food and drink. He gave him strength for the journey ahead. He pursued him even when his fear and anxiety didn't get better. He met him where he was at with a gentle whisper. He listened to his cries, and he continued to use him for the kingdom even when Elijah thought he was finished. This is your God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Elijah, the God of Karen, the God of Robin, of Simone, of Jess. This is your God. He understands it when you run. He cares for you when you need rest and refreshment. He gives you strength for the journey ahead. He pursues you even when your fears don't improve. He meets you where you are at, exactly the way that you need him. He listens to your cries, and he can use you for the kingdom in mighty ways, even if you think, God, it is enough. This is your God. He is faithful to you in your failures. So what happens with the rest of the story? So we started with Genesis. It only feels fitting to tell you what happens to Revelation. I'll do it faster this time, I promise. So Israel continues to turn their face away from God. And despite God continuing to send prophets to call them back to repentance, Israel rejects the truth. So because of this, consequences continue to come. First, the nation of Assyria comes and takes over Israel. Then about 100 years later, the nation of Babylon comes and takes over Judah. For 70 years, the Israelites live in a foreign land ruled by the enemy in exile. They are experiencing God's divine discipline for not being faithful to him. So after this period, Israel comes back to the land, they rebuild the temple, and then there's 400 years of silence. God stops sending prophets. God stops sending his word. And very appropriately, the voice of the Lord breaks through with the cry of a baby. The cry of a baby. The son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the very son of God, the seed of Eve that we have been talking about has been faithfully protected, and it is here. 
Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Jesus, he lived a perfect life. He did three years of ministry where he demonstrated to the people through his messages and his miracles that he was the awaited Messiah. He was the seed of Eve. He was the one who was coming to save the world. You see, he was God's faithful plan. He turned water into wine. He gave the blind man sight. He fed the hungry and he healed the sick. His message was consistent. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet, Israel rejects him. The Jews accuse him of blasphemy. And in the most devastating history, or moment in history, they nail their long-awaited Messiah to a tree. By God's grace, though, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Three days pass, and he's resurrected from the grave. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin, and by his blood, we can be saved. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So don't you see God has and always will be faithful. And though we fail, though we continue to fail, Jesus has come to save us. Not once. Jesus continually saves us, right? If we simply believe, we get to have a relationship with him. After his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days on earth in his resurrected body, and then he ascends into heaven. The Messiah takes his rightful place at the right hand of God, and he leaves the people on earth, those who he's commissioned to take his good news and spread it. So the 12 disciples and everybody else who knew him on earth takes this message. The Messiah has come. God is faithful. All you must do is believe. And city by city, the gospel spreads and the church becomes unstoppable. And it is a message that continues to spread until it has reached our ears today, September 2nd, 2023. The best news yet, Jesus is returning one day. He's going to reign on an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom, just like God promised David. See, if you believe this, you'll live with him forever. It's a pretty good story, right? Pretty incredible God. And so as we wrap up, I want to tell you why I chose 1 Kings. (laughs) Ah, Why 1 Kings? Why did we unpack Israel's idolatry and Elijah's anxiety? Why do we care about their failure? It's because Jesus came for us and ours. In our idolatry, in our anxiety, in our pride, in our control, self-sufficiency, anger, impatience, you name it, he came for it. That is who our God is. Jesus came for us and ours. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Should have put it on a slide, but I don't know if you've ever noticed. It says, but God demonstrates. It doesn't say, but God demonstrated his love for us. It says, but God demonstrates. It's present. He does it continually. That is how God loves us, is that he sent his son to die for us in our sin. He shows us his love continually through that. So, why first kings? Because Jesus came for us in our failure. And second, because I want you to see that God's character the very core and essence of who he is, it never changes. 
It didn't change after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. It didn't change after Israel was disobedient and worshipped idols. It didn't change as Elijah got scared and ran into the wilderness after Jezebel's threats. It didn't change as Jesus was nailed to a cross, and it does not change in the face of your struggles today. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so at the beginning of this message, I personally asked the question, if I believe, then why am I still struggling? I have an answer for you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why we still struggle. I don't know. I don't know why you still have fear if you believe in God. Sometimes it is a lack of trust in God, and sometimes God is doing something a lot bigger than us, and we never know what's happening. And so I think a lot of us won't find that answer on this side of heaven, and I think we need to learn to be okay with that. What I do know is that you can trust him. And so I started with the story of my panic attack. Um, I took this picture at the airport a year later. I sat in that chair, almost not able to get on a plane to move here. And a year later, I had just visited my family. We had settled in Toowoomba. We found this church. We found this church. We bought a house. I was pregnant. And the heaviest wave of my grief had passed. Do I still struggle? Oof, yes. Do I still have hard days? Absolutely. But I stopped in front of that table almost dead in my tracks, realizing God is faithful. God is faithful. I could finally see his goodness again after a year of being in the fog. God is faithful. You have no idea what he might be doing in your circumstances. So, you know what's really interesting about 1 Kings 19? Is that some people believe that the angel of the Lord that came to care for Elijah in the midst of the desert is called a theophany, a Christophany, if you will. What that means is that it was Jesus, pre-incarnate, revealing himself before he took on human flesh. It was Jesus, by his side, caring for him in the midst of his pain. It was Jesus standing by him when he had had enough. I wonder if Jesus might want to meet some of you where you're at today. I wonder if anyone here would like to ask God to meet them afresh in this place, to reveal part of himself to you like he did Elijah, to meet you in your anxiety in a personal way, to give over the burden of stress and control and self-sufficiency that you've been carrying on your own shoulders. Some of you just need to talk to him. I know I do. <laughs> and so you're going to have some time here to process and pray and reflect on some questions, um, but I'm going to pray for you just as um, we head into that time to do that. So, oh, Father, we just thank you that over and over again in your word that there is evidence that you are faithful to us, that your character doesn't change, that you will do what you say, that you are trustworthy, stable, reliable, that you love us, and that no matter how we might fail, that that will never change. God, I thank you for the time to come and study your word. 
it is an incredible thing to live in a place where we can openly study the Bible. And so I thank you for that provision for us today. God, I pray that you would meet these women exactly where they're at. That you would meet them in a gentle whisper and that they would know that they are loved and they are cared for and that your character never changes in the face of their struggles. Thank you for Jesus and the way that he has changed everything for us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.